Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Karen Joy Fowler on her latest novel, Booth. Karen Joy Fowler is the New York Times best-selling author of three short story collections and seven novels, including the Jane Austen Book Club, which was later made into a film. We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2014, won the Penn Faulkner Prize and has sold over a million copies. And today we're going to be talking about Karen's latest novel, which is Booth. Karen, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for asking me. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe this novel? I would say that it's a family novel. It's a historical novel, and I think, obviously, the character in it, who is the reason I wrote the novel, one of the younger sons, John Rokes Booth, is not the character that I wanted to center the novel on. Um, He's the most famous member of the family, but I think that he's not the most interesting member of the family. And I wanted to talk about the rest of the family and what it was like to be his brother. So so let's talk about that idea then. How do you approach telling, ostensibly telling the story of John Wilkes Booth, but without centering the story on John Wilkes Booth? I found it very tricky. It was, you know, something I thought about on almost every page, how to keep the focus where I wanted to keep the focus and yet continually be aware that for most people reading the book, their interest is engaged when he comes on the page in a particularly special way that the the rest of the family doesn't have access to. And again, you know, I, for an American audience, I would expect his name to be instantly familiar, that everybody would know sort of at least the very basics that John Wilkes Booth is the man who assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. And also probably that this happened in a theater and that John Wilkes Booth was himself an actor. Um, I wouldn't necessarily expect even an American audience to know more than that. But I do feel the fact of the impending assassination, which does not happen until the end of my book. And yet, again, as I said, is 
would be um, something I would expect at least an American audience to be very aware of. I think that the fact of knowing that that's coming adds a sort of narrative tension that the book wouldn't otherwise have. So, you know, he kind of controls the book, despite my best efforts to keep him out of the center. And why did you want to tell this story now at this particular point in history? Well, my answer to that changed as I wrote the book. When I started, I was very focused on the very, very special relationship that Americans have to guns. And there had been, as there so frequently is, a spate of mass shootings. And I was thinking about that and, you know, wondering why this problem seems to be so intractable in my country when other countries have dealt with it so much better. But as part of thinking about it, I started thinking of the families of the shooters, that obviously the families of the victims are going through something unimaginably unendurable, but that there's something additional for the families of the shooters, some additional sense of perhaps complicity, which might be warranted and might not be warranted, but seems to me inevitable that you would you would spend the rest of your life thinking, what if I had done this? What if I had not said that? And because I had also been writing for several years, short stories involving the Booth family, it was sort of easy to go from that question to the family of the most famous shooter in American history. I thought for the research I had done, for the stories that I had written, a question I had never yet looked at was what the impact of the assassination was on the lives of his brothers and sisters. So I began with that. But then with the election of Trump, which happened when I was about a year, maybe two years into thinking about this book and just beginning to write this book, my focus kind of switched from that initial one to it just became very, very visible how much the issues of the Civil War were still very live in America, the extent to which this war has never resolved the basic issues of white supremacy and states' power. And so I switched my focus basically off of guns and onto mostly racism. Indeed, as you say, I mean, this book has, there's contemporary resonances here, as you said, not only has racism and white supremacy, two sort of like founding ideas of America obviously not gone away, and they keep rearing their heads every now and then. But beyond that, there are, I mean, John, I mean, we'll talk more about the family and their relationship with slavery a little later on. But in some respects, we could say that the family itself was for that time, a relatively liberal one. And certainly Edwin, his brother, is a supporter of Lincoln and not of the South in the Civil War. And John is sort of radicalised in a way that feels, reading it now, to be, you know, almost a contemporary story. At the same time, this is, it's a family of celebrities. Now, I knew that a number of them were actors, but I don't think I really appreciated before how famous both John's father and his brother Edwin particularly were, and indeed one of his sisters is also a a notable writer at the time, eventually. And it almost seems like trying to imagine this now on a modern time, like how this would play out if this happened now in contemporary society, like, I don't know, what if 
one of Tom Hanks's kids went and killed the president or something. You know, it, it, it's unimaginable to look back on this event when it happened through that sort of prism of contemporary celebrity, isn't it? Yes. Um, this is now quite a bit dated, but I think, you know, six or seven years ago, I read somebody say, you know, make a very similar point that they said, you know, it's as if Brad Pitt has a little brother. And suddenly one day you wake up and the headline in the paper is that Brad Pitt's little brother has murdered the president. I was trying to think of examples and I was going to say Casey Affleck, but then that would have to mean that Ben Affleck was the greatest American contemporary actor <laughs> of his time. Which I wasn't I wasn't prepared to go on record as trying to claim. Sorry, Ben. Um, so I wanted to talk to you then about, okay, so some of these people are incredibly famous. Obviously John Wilkes Booth. We don't need to say that, but again, his father and at least one of his brothers was considered of their time the greatest of American actors. And therefore, there is clearly a lot of both contemporary and latterly, you know, scholarly work about these people. Some of the members of the family are virtually unknown in terms of records that exist. So I wanted to talk about your process of researching. We're going to talk about each of the um, the three siblings that you basically narrate the story through in a little more detail in a moment. But let's talk something about your process of research and I guess the least well-known ones. There's just a tremendous amount of material on this family. Of, of course, again, the continued interest, I think, mostly prompted by the assassination. But whatever the reason, Edwin's celebrity or the horrifying assassination of the president there is a group of people who have never lost interest in this family. And there are a number of books, a number of biographies have been written, at least about the father, Junius Booth, and about Edwin and about John. And so there's there's no shortage of material. And Asia, the youngest of the girls, also wrote three books herself, which are about her father and her brothers and can still be read. There are a number of letters. Edwin carried on a pretty wide communication with a number of people, and many, many of his letters survive. Asia uh, has a, decades of letters to her best childhood friend, a, a friendship that lasted up until her death. So the trick is not finding material, because it's there. The trick is sorting through the mythology and getting closer to something that resembles the truth. Because um, there's a fairly famous experiment, I think, involving the Challenger explosion, where somebody asked a bunch of high school students right about the time that it happened, what the impact on their lives and psyches of the Challenger explosion had been. And they were fairly dismissive. You know, they weren't callous, but it didn't seem to impact their lives in any particular way, and they, they didn't attach any particular importance to it. And then these same people were asked about 10 years later the same question, what, what was the impact of the Challenger explosion? And not only had their answers changed, they had not realized their answers had changed. They now remembered being very disturbed by it, very unsettled, very unhappy at the time, which they now realized this was a major event and that's what they should have felt. And so in their memories, that is what they did feel. And I just apply this to, to history in general. 
but particularly to a history like this one where there is this cataclysmic event. And it becomes therefore very important if you're looking at material and seeing, you know, so here's here's a memory somebody has of an encounter that they had with John Wilkes Booth. You have to ask yourself, you know, was this memory written down before the assassination? Or is this something remembered afterwards? Because afterwards, people's ideas of who they had always thought John Wilkes Booth was changed dramatically. There's just, you know, in the light of this historically cataclysmic event, people's memories changed a great deal. And a lot of mythology grew up around the family. A lot of explanations for how John Wilkes became the person that he became, which hadn't really existed beforehand, suddenly began to get a lot of traction. And so that that really was the tricky part for me. I had a lot of help. I had help from two nonfiction writers in particular, one of whom wrote a biography of Edwin Booth and one of whom wrote a biography of John Wilkes Booth and both of whom you know had just done massive amounts of research and were extremely helpful to me not only pointing me in directions where I might find material but in sort of discussing with me what seemed to be reliable to them. So yes indeed we we have to remember that while this is a historical novel about real events it is a novel and these characters are your characters as much as they are real people who once existed and lived and breathed and and I'm thinking particularly here again of Rosalie I want to talk about who your Rosalie is in the novel because she's the character that seems to be the least well known that the least is known about the real person Yes, she just uh, left such a slight mark on the world. You know, even in the, as I said, the vast number of letters written by her brothers and sisters, the books written by her sister, she barely appears. Yeah, she's the character that I fictionalized the most. I had the least to go on. I knew where she was at every point. And I knew what was happening around her. And I often knew what was happening to her. But who she was... I had very little information about. She's she's rarely mentioned without some comment being made about her being an invalid. And yet, look as I would and consult as I would with other people who's, who've looked, I could never determine what infirmity she actually suffered from. The facts of her life that I did know show a person who's fairly active, able to be out and about, able, you know, to have friends and to travel, um, at least within the small circumference of the farm and the and the city of Baltimore, about 40 miles away, where they also had a house. So, you know, there's just not a lot to go on. I chose, I chose to give her scoliosis because... Her death certificate mentions a very advanced case of scoliosis, but I am also aware that um, that the word scoliosis may have meant something different at the time that her her death certificate was written. And so I'm not at all persuaded that I'm right in doing that, in spite of seeing the word in her death certificate. Rosalie has, let's say, a gift which is that she is able to perceive out in the grounds of the farm where they are living the ghosts, the spirits of her dead siblings. This was a very large family, only a small portion of which actually managed to survive into adulthood. Tell us something about including these elements in the story. 
I just, you know, one of the reasons that I felt the story needed to start with Rosalie, even though there were great gaps in the information I had about her, is that I felt that an extremely significant part of the story was the death of her four younger siblings. And that the four who survived, the next four in birth order, would not have remembered those events. She is the only one who would remember the siblings who died because the the next cohort hadn't been born yet. And this is, you know, this is just something that is continually, I think, a puzzling, troubling sort of issue for historical writers is the extent to which children died. And I do think that in the case of the Booth family, the fact of the deaths of these four children had an enormous impact on the mother and the father. Uh, I think the father's predilection for insanity really took off at the time of the, some of the children's deaths. And I don't think the mother ever quite recovered. And yet, you know, this was not an uncommon thing in that time. You, you look at the Lincoln family as well, of their children, only one survived to adulthood. So, you know, the fact that it's so ubiquitous and in many ways, you know, something you, you're forced to anticipate, I would imagine, as a parent in that time, does not persuade me that it's any less devastating. So, you know, putting those two things together, how devastating the loss of a child is and how common the loss of a child was is something I think it's hard for a modern mind to grapple with. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Karen Joy Fowler and we're talking about her new novel, Booth. And Karen, you also tell the story through the life of Asia, the other sister, and then Edwin, the actor, the good actor in the family, the, the man that is described as the greatest American actor of his age, which is a, it's a very difficult thing to imagine now because this was obviously a time before film so even you know even the famous actors from the silent period we now still all know and can see every day because their work was committed to film but obviously you know it's impossible to see the work of Edwin Booth. It is impossible to see it but it is not impossible to hear it. There is on the internet There is a recording, lots of crackle and annoying background noise, but you can hear Edwin Booth reciting a speech from Othello. It's quite chilling to hear his voice. I didn't know that. That's amazing. I will definitely, I will definitely see that. Not Hamlet, though, unfortunately, which is of course no. the role that he was most renowned for. Um, but yeah, tell us something about. I wanted to talk about your approach to, to Edwin because we've just talked about Rosalie, but unlike Rosalie, Edwin was an incredibly famous person. So I'd like to talk to you about who your Edwin is. Edwin, again, because he left behind so many letters, I do feel a stronger sense of who he is. I I did not feel that I was completely making him up. His letters are very charming, very witty, very self-deprecating. Again, you know, they're not just his letters, but there are a lot of accounts of people who met him, people who saw him, people who knew him, sometimes people who knew him quite well. And so there are a lot of kind of character studies that people did of him. I'll return to Edwin, but I I just want to say quickly, because this keeps coming up, that it seems to me there's this perception that John Wilkes Booth was not a good actor. And I'm not at all sure that that's true. He was apparently a very good physical actor. His his sword play in particular was much admired, but um, I'm not sure that he was less talented than Edwin. He was less thoughtful, but mostly I think he just cared about it so much less. You know, it was really Edwin's calling and Edwin devoted himself to it. Well, John always believed that he was meant for something greater than just being an actor. But there were many people who preferred John's acting to Edwin's acting just as there were many people who preferred their father's acting to both of them. And a lot of it, I think, is just a matter of taste that Edwin is apparently, you know, made a move in the direction of more naturalism. His father was much more of a declaimer on the stage, big speeches, lots of ranting. And I think that John was more in the tradition of his father. And Edwin was much more subtle and a much quieter actor and much more focused on the internal motivations of the characters and and trying to determine what the character needed at any given time, what the character wanted at any given time. Happy then to go on the record and and blame Stephen Sondheim for my opinion that John Wilkes wasn't a very good actor. And he can't answer that now, so I can get away with it. Yes, I think that I think many people have asked me if I've watched Assassins. So I yes, I think this is where we got the idea that John Wilkes Booth was not a good actor. As well as telling the story 
in the main of the Booth family, you know, in on stage in front, in the front of stage, as it were. This book also tells the story of other people in the background, um, some of which are, you know, Joe and Anne Hall, who are slaves that live, well, not just with the Booths, but with other, other families in the neighbourhood for terrible reasons. And I deliberately said in the first half that the booze were in this time of slavery a relatively nicer family. But in saying that, there is through the book, the book shows the I mean, basically, nobody obviously comes out of, of slavery well. And what the book shows is how the cruelty of some of the kindnesses of the booze towards Joe and Ann Hall in the way that they thought they were somehow enlightened slave owners. Yes, they. Um, I feel that their attitude towards slavery was a very complicated one. And that they, with one brief exception, they did not own slaves themselves, but they hired other people's slaves to work the farm and to run the house. And my understanding is that then, you know, they would pay the slave owners, but that they also paid wages to the workers themselves. And that through the money that they paid Joe Hall and Ann Hall, um, Ann Hall was finally able to buy her freedom. Joe Hall was already a free man, but um, they had a number of kids. And, I, you know, I, I do find their lives incredibly, incredibly interesting. There's very little material about them, but there is some. And one of the things you can see is that enslaved people were not listed in the census. So there's a census in which Ann Hall's name does not appear. And then there's the next census, and it does. So sometime between those two censuses, she was able to gain her freedom. At that point, she and Joe Hall could actually live together, which they had not been able to do. They did have a number of children. And according to Maryland law at the time, children born to a free woman were free and children born to an enslaved woman were enslaved. So all of their older children remained enslaved once Anne bought her freedom. But all of her younger children were then born free. And because they did not suffer the horrors of seeing their children sold away, they lived in a fairly small community with, you know, half of their children owned by someone else and half of their children living at home with them in a more ordinary and uh, desirable family situation. So just I, I just I try to imagine the complicated negotiations, emotional negotiations of half of your children being free and half of them not being and what that does to the to the family dynamic and what that does to the to the lived experiences of the children, some of whom you can protect and some of whom you have no way of protecting at all. It's just incredibly difficult for me to imagine. It's also interesting how you show the differing attitudes to the existence of slavery or living in that world where slavery existed through the eyes of the different generations of the Booth family. Yes, I do think there's a an important generational component. It seems to me that the most powerfully opposed to slavery member of the family was the grandfather, Richard. And he grew up 
almost all his life in England. So England has, of course, its own association with slavery, but it was not something that was around him as he grew up. And so I think when he came to America and had to live in the midst of it, it was very shocking to him. I think that it was shocking to his uh, his son, Junius, and wife, Marianne, in a way that I just don't think, I think that most of the Booth children opposed slavery, but I don't think they were shocked by it in the same way. They They grew up in, as I said, in the midst of it. And, you know, there's a, a development that any child goes through where at earlier points in your life, you just take for granted the things that are around you. You take for granted the way your own family behaves and is organized. And it's only as you begin to get older that you can notice that things may not, in fact, be organized for the best, that there might be better ways to do things and that there might be other ways to think about things. And I'm trying to head towards two points, I think. The first is that although this information came out relatively recently, it does appear that the grandfather was very instrumental in trying to help a handful of enslaved people escape from the Baltimore area to Philadelphia. And we know this because he was caught on at least one occasion, and Junius Booth, his son, had to pay vast sums of money to the people whose whose slaves had escaped in order to keep him out of jail for his part in it. But the other thing is just that although, you know, this was obviously the great issue of the day and became more and more and more obviously the great issue of the day as the Civil War began, it's not an issue that the Booth children, with the exception of John, really seem to have talked about much. So, you know, I believe that they said enough for me to believe that they were opposed to slavery, but it does not seem like an issue that really occupied a lot of their attention, um, with the exception of John, who was as pro-slavery as a person could be argued that slavery was the best thing that had ever happened, not only to the white race in America, but to the black race as well. To finish this off, can I get you to read us a little bit? Um, why don't, since we talked a little bit about Rosalie, why don't I read you just a little bit from the, so it, there's been a prologue, but chapter one is in Rosalie's point of view. Rosalie, the oldest daughter, is sitting on the steps that lead down to Beach Spring watching her baby brother and sister make boats out of leaves. She's thinking of Ophelia, drifting in her sodden gown, her hair spread over the water, her face surrounded by flowers. She is dreaming of what it would be like to be beautiful and dead. The month is March, the year 1838. In July, Rosalie will be 15 years old. She finds love tragic, easier to imagine, and honestly more satisfying than love triumphant. Rosalie is neither dead nor beautiful, although the first is easier for her to imagine than the second. She resembles her father and her older brother, but in miniature and with little feminizing of their features. Reclusive, reticent, stocky, she is not witty and graceful like the rest. Nothing is expected of her except that she be a good girl and a help to her mother. 
the most unremarkable child in this remarkable family. The long winter is just coming to its end. The blackbirds have arrived, the robins are expected, and Rosalie feels the turn in her breath, in her bones. She is not quite happy, but surprisingly close to it. She feels light. Perhaps the bad times are over. The moment she registers the feeling, it slips away. There's a palpable relief whenever father leaves on tour. Mail day is the exception. By noon, mother will be reading a letter from father. The letter will be good or it will be bad. Mother will need her desperately or she won't need her at all. The sky above the trees is pale and bare and skims in reflection over the flat surface of the water. It's not a warm day, but it's a dry one. Rosalie is wearing her shawl, her bonnet, and a pair of sturdy boots that were bought some years ago for her brother June. At 16, June is the oldest child. He's off in the barley fields this morning because father has read an article on some new fertilizing technique, and so it must be tried at once. Father is always impatient for the completion of projects in which he has no part. He often berates his own father for lack of industry. Father thinks grandfather drinks too much. Grandfather thinks the same of father. They quarrel about this endlessly whenever father is home, often from their customary chairs at the Churchfield Tavern, where all such arguments can be fueled by the jolly God. So I've been talking to Karen Joy Fowler. We've been talking about her latest novel, Booth, which is out in the UK now from Serpent's Tale. Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.